the fact that you do have to carry everything on your back. That introduces some, some interesting questions about what to carry, how to carry it, how much to carry. And so then you've got some questions and, to ask and some compromises to be made along the way in terms of, okay, well, we know we can't hit the theoretical goals for our nutrition. So what is the, the best sort of balance that we can strike? Hello and welcome to the Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm your host, Steph Gaskell, and as always, I am joined by my co-host, Alan McCubbin. How are you, Alan? Well, I heard you stumble over that intro a little bit, Steph, and I think I'm a bit the same because it's been a long day for both of us in the lab today. Um, we're recording this in the in the evening. Um but yeah, another another participant done for the sodium study, which is great, and uh, another one for you for your study as well. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's great to get those through. But um, yeah, it's school holidays at the moment, so it's even a bit more of a juggle than usual, trying to juggle kids and work, uh, etc. And uh, I just heard, obviously, you know, we're out of lockdown in Melbourne, but most of the rest of mm. Australia has gone into lockdown. Um, but interestingly, one of my wife's friends has just flown up to Queensland, and she. Fl- she went through the airport in Melbourne and it turned out she'd been through the airport at the same time as it became an exposure site. So she landed in Queensland to find out instead of going off to her holiday, she was going straight to oh. hotel quarantine. And so the two oh, weeks man. of her holiday for the school holidays are now spent with her family in mm. hotel quarantine, which she'll finish in time mm. to fly home to Melbourne again. So her entire trip to Queensland is going to be spent in a hotel in quarantine. Uh, that's, yeah. So yeah, she's no, not happy. Yeah, that's not fun. So the airport's an exposure no. site? Well, oh. it just was for a couple of hours. So where I think a flight oh, wow. attendant or someone yep, had been yep. there in yeah. that vicinity during that time point. So so they're yeah. now, yeah, they're, they're school holidays and their holiday to Queensland is now yeah. a trip to a hotel quarantine yeah. for two weeks. And then, and then all the there. people that, um, Gold Coast Marathon's this weekend. And that's, yeah, it's been cancelled. So, um, yeah, that's that's disappointing for everyone too. That, um, yeah, I guess mm. kind of saw that coming in the last few days. Mm. Yeah, mm. exactly. Uh, not yeah. fun, not fun. Tell us something cheerful, Alan. Yeah, well, something cheerful. Uh, if we think back to episode 8B, which was looking at iron supplements. Do I need iron supplements? We had our athlete guest, Ellie Pashley, on the podcast. Uh, and in the last couple of weeks, Ellie's been selected for the Australian team for the marathon at Tokyo Olympics. So big congratulations to Ellie. And obviously props to uh, her coach, Julian Spence, who was on episode 2B of the podcast mm. as well, uh, talking about his experience running the marathon world champs in, in Doha. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry, not 2B, 3B. Yeah. 3B. I'm losing track of all the episodes. <laughs> I'm up to 15. Yeah. And... Yeah. Um, how has um, is Emma Jeffcott qualified? What's uh, so they announced the team later this week. Okay. Yep. So yeah. yeah. So we don't know yet. Okay. Um, yeah. So they've had a series of races up in Cairns mm-hmm. uh, and Port Douglas over the last month. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're all just flown back into to Melbourne, which was probably good timing considering everything that's been happening. Um, so yeah, we'll we'll wait and see on that one, mm. but hopefully we'll find out later this week. Yeah. Excellent. And Alan, 
Um, you do look like, I mean, I know today was a, a massive day in the lab, so that's fair for you to look a bit upset and tired, but it also looks like you got something on your mind. Oh, tell me about it, Steph. So our topic <laughs> today, so it's episode 15A today, and our topic is how do I plan for a self-sufficient multi-day event? So we've talked about stage racing sort of more broadly before, uh, so we're not going to go back and, and cover that in too much detail, uh, but we need to look at the self-sufficient aspect of that today. And I guess one of the things obviously being self-sufficient is you've got to carry your own you know, food and equipment and everything. And so I guess one of the things that uh, you know, I often speak to people about these sort of events and then I come back and speak to people like yourself, Steph, and kind of roll my eyes and say, oh, don't get me started on that. But in this particular <laughs> case, what really gets me started on self-sufficient events is everyone's obsession with weight. And yeah, I mean, I get it. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you've got to carry it on mm -hmm. your back. You don't want to carry more weight than you have to. But people thinking that they can just carry the bare minimum and they're just obsessed with the weight side of things but don't consider what that weight represents in terms of fuel and nutrition and sustenance mm. and something to stop you from feeling like you're starving. Um, and mm. I have this argument with almost every single person I work with for self-sufficient events. They say, I want less, I want less, it's got to be lighter, got to be lighter. Um, this is generally people who are doing their first event. Uh, and then mm. I'm continually negotiating to try and put more food back in and we'll talk about why a bit later on mm -hmm. uh, and then mm -hmm. usually after the event they come back and go oh yeah i should have taken more food yeah <sighs> i yep. don't know how many times i've i've heard that story <laughs> but uh <laughs> yeah so now every time i hear it i just think oh don't get me started again <laughs> anyway <laughs> well the good thing is uh that now you will be able to refer them to this podcast exactly and they will see the reason for you know, why it can be of benefit to perhaps carry a bit more. Um, and you can just say, hey, listen to episode, blah, 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 blah. Well, I think what happens is more, I guess, what's something that you've had a bit of a rant before about mm. is that they look at who, what the top guys are doing mm. and they're not carrying very much at all mm. and think that's what I need to do as well. Mm. Um, and there's often people doing the, a self-sufficient event for the first time. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's when I think things go a bit pear-shaped. Mm. So, yes, uh, I've explained it, black and blue. Uh, and they're like, yeah, but I need to save weight. <laughs> so, yes. So what I guess what we're going to do tonight yes. is talk about why that's not necessarily the best strategy. Yeah. But also, how do you minimise the weight while maximizing the calories at the same time. Yeah. So I guess that's the, the, the real trick yeah. from a nutrition perspective for these kind of events. Yeah. So you're feeling better? Slightly. Slightly. I think I'll feel better the next time a client comes through and, and uh, says, oh, listen to that podcast, I want to carry more food. <laughs> then I'll feel better. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> mm. um, and... Uh, I guess we just want to encourage people as well to any questions you've got, um, please leave them on, you know, send to our social media. So Facebook, Twitter, um, Instagram, uh, and you can listen to us on all your popular platforms as well. Um, but yeah, and also I think, um, yeah, I've been fortunate enough to recruit participants through this podcast and um, you've been getting close to Alan. 
Um, so yeah, we've we've still got studies going. We would still love more people, and not just our um, own studies, but we've posted on our social media some of the current studies or the ones that are coming up at Monash University. We've also posted other, you know, even just writing survey um, studies that are going on at other universities. Um, and any part that you can play in helping um, contribute, uh, it's going to help you all in the long run because it's in this area of endurance nutrition. Uh, yeah. And yeah, I mean, I'm always continually surprised with um, participants that that do get involved. I think, wow, they're amazing for, you know, giving up their time. Um, but I mean, at the same time, it, it helps educate them and they always seem to get a fair bit out of it as well from a learning perspective too. And, you know, they get um, what could cost a lot of um, money from consults um, and they get to spend, yeah, some good quality time with us, Alan. Yeah, that's right. Mm. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, and I think, you know, as you said, uh, ultimately, you know, if we want to move the science forward in some of these areas and get more specific guidelines and recommendations and and work out what the best strategies are for various things, we need science to do that, and we can't get science without participants. And mm. obviously, if it's if it's science around endurance athletes, then we need endurance athletes to participate in it. So, yeah, uh, yeah it's kind of that that circular thing, I guess mm. that. Um, you know, we can create the science, but we need the help to do that. So, yeah. yeah, any help you can give, whether it's just completing a survey like the one we posted from La Trobe University on social media during the week, um, or if it's, you know, coming into the lab at Monash, you know, anything that you can do to help, or any other universities, maybe you live in the UK or the US or somewhere else in the world and mm -hmm. there's studies going on there, I always encourage people to get involved with them. As you said, you learn an awful lot yourself about your own body and how it reacts in different scenarios. Mm. Um, but you obviously also contribute to to knowledge that will help all athletes, uh, whether it's on the health and wellness side of things or if it's on the performance side of things, depending on the study. Mm. Yep, yeah. Uh, and so what are we talking about today? Yeah, so yeah, said so before, it's episode 15A. And our topic is how do I plan for a self-sufficient multi-day event? Uh, so there's obviously plenty of these different types of events around um, and we'll, we'll get into that in just a sec. But um, yeah, this was a, a one that we had a query from um, quite a while ago um, asking if we could provide some more information about this mm. uh, particular type of event. It's, I guess, a bit of a unique challenge. Uh, one that, that I think both of us certainly enjoy working with athletes that do these kind of events because it really takes the, the physiology and the science but a lot of logistical and practical hurdles that you've got to overcome as well and, and sort of brings those things together which makes it really interesting mm -hmm. to work on I think um, for you know, in our role yeah. as, as sports yeah. dietitians. And uh, who are the lovely speakers? Who are the lovely speakers? Well, you, you're listening to them already. Oh. It's us. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. No, no, no guess for this one. <laughs> we just decided to uh, impart our own wisdom, um, having having done quite a bit of these already. Yeah. So, yeah, that's us. And then, obviously, next week we'll have our athlete guest, which we'll get to at the end of the episode. Yeah. Excellent. I'm looking forward to getting stuck into this one. Yep, let's do it. So we are going to talk about self-sufficient multi-stage events and, and how we plan nutrition for those. Um, but before we do that, I think we need to explain, well, what are 
I guess, what is a self-sufficient event? What do we mean by that? And what are the types that, that are out there? Mm, yeah, it's obviously an important point is kind of defining those things. And I think obviously people have done multi-stage events that are self-sufficient before will kind of intuitively know what that is and what that means. But for those who may be considering it or, or haven't before but might want to in the future, it's obviously important to know. So a self-sufficient event is generally regarded as an event where you have to carry all your own food with you um, and usually clothing and equipment and things as well so you you've got a, a pretty large pack compared to what you would normally run or ride with uh, and you've got to carry all those things provisions along the way there can be some events where also you drop food just in like literally in bushes or somewhere where you're you know, hidden somewhere where you collect along the way like food drops um, where there's no physical crew or people there to give it to you but you 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 pick it up along the way. So that can be the case as well. Um, but in both cases, there's kind of an, ever, uh, an emphasis on that kind of aspect of self-sufficiency. Um, I guess in terms of the sports or the disciplines where you might see this, there, there is a variety. Uh, I guess the ones that people tend to think of are the multi-stage ultra marathons that are self-sufficient. So races like Marathon de Saab, um, the Race the Planet, um, type of multi-stage events as well uh, and they all have you know a particular kind of formula around them so generally speaking all of those events will have um, specific rules and regulations around what you have to take with you uh, obviously mandatory equipment and safety gear and, and that kind of thing but from a, a food perspective most of them have a 2,000 calorie a day minimum that's required to be carried at all times so if it's a seven stage race or seven-day race, sorry, you're required to, to start the race with 14,000 calories worth of food, and then by the next day you still have to have at least 12,000 left in your pack. Uh, so you have to have at least 2,000 calories per day for every remaining day of, of the event. Mm. Um, so you, you can have a lot more than that, and we'll, we'll talk about that as we go through, whether it's better to carry more or less, um, but that is kind of the minimum. Um, but there's other types of events, uh, both competitive and non-competitive, that might be self-sufficient. There can be some adventure races that, that have that aspect to them, um, but also a lot of things like expeditions and, and non-competitive things, you know, bikepacking adventures and, and those kinds of things, um, you know, obviously hiking um, or some sort of, you know, really off-trail, um, you know, uh, wilderness kind of running and that kind of thing can um, be self-sufficient just because of the the remoteness of, of the the area that you're going into you just can't access it with with support crew and things like that so that certainly can be the case and and I've, I've been involved with you know a few sort of charity events as well where people have either running or cycling uh, that's um, got sections or the whole thing where it's fairly limited access from support crew and things where people have to be self-sufficient for at least part or or in some cases the whole event um, for, for various reasons. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's like even people that are, um, you know, how they, they trek the um, to the south, the south Pole, those types mm. of things as well. Like, yeah. you know, they have a sled that they're carrying and they've got, you know, they've got to obviously carry that. So there's also there a certain amount of food they need to carry at least to a particular checkpoint. And it's, so there's races that are done there too. So quite extreme um, environments mm. um, that yeah. we're looking at. So what's similar or, or different compared to, you know, um, doing those events when they're supported? 
Yeah. Well, I guess if we start with the similarities, I mean, I guess at the end of the day, the physiology is the same. Um, you know, physiology is physiology, whether you're running, cycling, uh, whether it's self-sufficient or, or supported. Um, and so therefore, I guess all the, the basic recommendations or goals that we're trying to achieve from a nutrition point of view will be exactly the same. You know, fueling before and during the hydration aspect, uh, recovery optimization, which we obviously talked about in our previous episode um, with Isabella Russo and, and Richard Bowles. Um, so all of those aspects will be kind of universal. Um, I guess what is different, though, is is the logistical challenges, the practical stuff mm. um, that makes you know achieving that optimal recovery potentially very challenging, depending on the environment and, and the particular rules, regulations, logistical restrictions, etc. Um, I guess one of the the unique challenges of, of self-sufficient events is the load carriage aspect, the fact that you do have to carry everything on your back and a lot more than you would in a, in a supported um, scenario. And so that introduces some, some interesting questions about what to carry, how to carry it, how much to carry, uh, which we'll obviously un unpack in this episode today. Yeah. Um, and so because of, of this issue with load carriage and um, self-sufficiency, it's not uncommon in, in these self-sufficient events that you really have insufficient food and nutrition to optimise performance and recovery. Um, there may be situations where you can more or less get there, but most of the time that will be very difficult. And so then you've got some questions and to ask and some compromises to be made along the way in terms of, okay, well, we know we can't hit the theoretical goals for our nutrition, so what is the, the best sort of balance that we can strike uh, between the logistical aspect and the, the sciencey physiology stuff? Mm, yeah, and I think what we can sometimes see, what can be common, is that many individuals doing these events can often go lighter and skimp on nutrition because I think they perhaps prioritise, you know, obviously some of that equipment aspect or thinking that okay well obviously if I've got a lighter pack then it's it's less effort for me mm, yeah definitely and I think for um and certainly I think this is universal probably 100 percent of people I've worked with that do self-sufficient events uh whether it's competitive or not is that there's a real obsession with pack weight or load carriage uh, and trying to minimise the amount of weight to carry in. And that makes perfect sense. You can understand why people would have that sort of mindset. You know, if you put uh, a backpack on your back, the more you fill it up, the more uncomfortable it's going to be to run. Uh, and you can imagine from a performance point of view what that's potentially going to do. Um, so, yeah, totally understandable that that people would focus particularly on that. Uh, I guess the, the, the question that then um, raises, and, and this was something that that came up um, certainly on my radar. We did a um, myself and a couple of other sports dietitians, Greg Cox and Liz Broad, did a, a, a sort of case series, so a study of, of five different competitors in in Marathon to Saab that we'd done the nutrition planning for, and um, sort of uh, compared notes in terms of how that planning worked out, uh, and then also the feedback from from the athletes themselves in terms of their experiences. And one of the questions we raised in that case study was this this question: you know, do you carry more and have better nutrition so you get better recovery better fueling or do you skimp on the nutrition and have a lighter pack but suboptimal fueling and suboptimal recovery like what is actually better for performance uh, and it's it's not actually a very easy question to answer you know everyone has an opinion on it but there's actually very little science in that area yeah yeah and so um 
is the extra energy cost of running, um, you know, is that kind of simply just requiring you to carry more food? Yeah, it's it's an interesting question, and obviously one that Richard Bowles raised with us last week on the podcast. You know, if you carrying this extra food to get the extra nutrition, then isn't that just requiring you to expend more energy and burn up the, the extra calories that you're carrying? Mm. So I, I did a bit of number crunching on this just to try and put it into a little bit of context. So uh, there are a few studies uh, that have looked at, I guess, the energy cost of carrying extra weight on your back while you're either walking or running. So obviously it's an area that the military, for example, are very mm. interested in because they have a, a lot of equipment and things, supplies that they have to carry with them. Um, but there's also been studies in the context of things like adventure racing as well. Mm. So the, the data here is from a study in, in 2017. It was published looking at adventure racing and they looked at um, comparing the, the energy cost of running uh, with either no pack, uh, with a pack that had 5.3 kilos added to it, which is kind of similar to what a lot of um, I guess recreational competitors, if you like, mm. the, the non-competitive ones in the the um, self-sufficient multi-stage ultra marathons that the amount of weight that they might carry in terms of clothing and equipment and things so before you even add the food might be 5.3 kilos uh, and then an 11.3 kilo pack uh, which is probably heavier than most people would go into those events with um, and then you look at the energy cost so the unloaded pack um, the energy cost was about one calorie or was just under 0.96 calories per kilogram of body mass so if you're 70 kilos, multiply it by 70 per kilometre run. Mm-hmm. Um, once you add on the 5.3 kilo pack, it goes up from 0.96 to about 1.1 calories per kilo per kilometre. Uh, and then with the 11.3 kilo pack, goes up to 1.2 calories per kilo of body mass per kilometre. So it definitely goes up. There is an extra energy cost to carrying that extra weight, which you know you would expect. Um, that That's kind of obvious. The question is, how much extra energy does that cost compared to you know the energy that you would get from eating the mm. food if that extra weight is food rather than equipment and mm. clothing and things like that? Um, so I crunched the numbers on this, and it turns out that the amount of um, yeah, for a 40-kilometre stage, so a lot of these you know, multi-stage ultra races, the, the typical stage length will be around that sort of 40-kilometre mark. Um, it's, a, it's only an extra 0.5 to 1 calories per 100 grams of food required for 40 kilometres of running in a day. Um, to put that into perspective, most um, self-sufficient events, we're aiming for what we call an energy density, so the amount of calories per 100 grams of food of, a, of over 400. It's not a lot of difference. And so the, the extra food, like if the extra weight is food, the extra calories you will get from that food, unless you're taking lettuce and celery sticks <laughs> with you, the extra calories that you get from that food is going to far outweigh the actual energy cost to carry that food so it is actually you will get more energy overall from doing that um, compared to if you were just um, you know skimping on the nutrition so certainly carrying it is not going to be counterproductive if that makes sense Mm. yeah yeah definitely Um, so the potential benefits I guess of carrying more um, that can obviously mean that if they're going to carry more nutrition, they're going to have better fueling during the event. Um, they're going to have probably better recovery to be able to, you know, I guess try and continue with a relatively decent pace and it 
probably will impact on things like per perception of effort and those types of things. Um, there was, again, I think because this wasn't so well answered in the research, um, there was a study um, that was not all that long ago done, wasn't there? Yeah, so we, we alluded to this last week. We talked a little bit about it um, with the interview with Richard because he was the participant in that study. Um, so, yes, yeah, so when I did that Marathon de Saab case series, we raised this question about, you know, weight versus nutrition. Uh, and so one of the issues there was, you know, how do you resolve that? So we had um, an honours student at, at Monash, Rebecca Alcock, who um, took on this project as an honours project uh, back in 2015. Um, and so we're originally looking to do this as a study with maybe, or a case series with maybe three runners, where we actually simulate an entire multi-stage ultramarathon in the lab in a heated tent um, to simulate kind of the, the physiological demands uh, and then get them with a, a weighted pack, which we would alter the weight according to the, you know, representing the food that they were carrying or not carrying, uh, and then feed them according to, you know, the weight of that food. Um, in the end, we only had one volunteer for it because, mm -hmm. as you can imagine, it's it's not the uh, the most pleasant thing to to do five days of running fifty k's a day on a treadmill in a heated tent. Uh, and Richard was the the volunteer for it, so we spoke a little bit about that last week. But essentially, uh, in that case study, we either fed him a hundred percent of what we estimate his his nutrition requirements for, so sort of the the perfect world scenario in terms of nutrition, um, which would work out for him was about five thousand calories a day. Um, I can't remember the exact protein and carbs and everything off the top of my head. Mm -hmm. Or in the second trial, so he did it twice. We literally halved everything, um, so he's getting about two and a half thousand calories a day. So when you think about it. The half provisions that we provided here are pretty similar to what a lot of people go into self-sufficient multi-stage ultras with. It's still greater than the minimum requirement from um, the, the regulations for most of the running events. Uh, and, and most people are usually aiming, I, I find, when I speak to people, at around 2,500 calories a day is not unusual. Um, but that was the half provision. So the other one was literally doubled from that. Mm. Uh, and what we found in that, you know, Richard talked a bit about it last week, um, is that when he had the 5,000 calories a day, he certainly felt a lot more full. He struggled gastrointestinal-wise to tolerate the, the volume of food that he was having. Um, but the flip side to that is both physically and psychologically, he was so much better off. So the amount of time that he actually had to slow down and walk for recovery during that 50-kilometer run was a lot less when he had the full provisions. Um, we did a, a bunch of um, psychometric tests, and he performed much better on those. Um with the full provisions as well. Uh, yes, he expended more energy, but again, the, the extra energy he ate far outweighed the extra energy that he expended um, by doing that. So, um, you know, as you mentioned last week, it's probably he wouldn't choose to do the 100% um, of requirements. Uh, that's probably overkill. Um, unfortunately, we didn't have, you know, logistically we couldn't. We were looking originally at doing three, like 100%, 50%, and maybe 75%. Uh, unfortunately, just logistically that didn't work out. Um, but I think probably the, the optimal would have been somewhere around that maybe 70 to 80%, somewhere in that range. Um, but certainly a lot more than the 2,500 calories a day and a lot more than I guess people would traditionally take with them yeah and so bear in mind that this is you know he's having the 5,000 calories a day he's also having double the food weight in his pack mm. so he he started with you know an extra five kilos on his back on day one um 
And yet, despite that, he felt physically and psychologically better, um, despite carrying this extra weight on his back. Um, I guess one of the things to also consider in this with the multi-stage events is that, yes, you might have a pack that's five kilos heavier on day one, but day two, the difference between the full pack and the lighter pack is less, and it gets less and less until the last day. The difference is probably less than half a kilo. Um, so, yes, you, know, you think five kilos, oh, that's a lot of weight, but it's only a lot of weight on day one, and the difference gets smaller the further the event goes on. Mm. I think he um, – I'm just having a look, actually, at the, the case study where you've been um, talking um, – so the total pack weight on the first day, it seems, was about nine kilos. But then on day five, it, was, it went down to obviously about six kilos. Whereas when mm. he did the full provision, that was 14 kilos. And then by day five, it went down to about seven kilos. Um, yeah. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so yep. what, we, what we did there is we had a fixed amount of weight in the pack that represented clothing and equipment. Yes. And then, and you're then the additional about the weight was weight. the food weight. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So you've got five, about four kilos to start with, with food weight on the ration and then nine kilos, yeah, with the full provisions. And the, the rationed intake, the carbs were about 550 grams, whereas when you did the full provisions, it was about 1,100, 1,200 grams. And then yep. um, protein was about 100 grams in the rations. And on the full, it was about 200. And then fat was about 60 to 70 on the rationed. And then on the full, it was about 150. Yeah, yeah. And so I think it's a good example, like the 100%, mm -hmm. that's a lot of food. Mm. Uh, now, technically, that's how much you, you body chews through mm. during an event like that. But if you're not used to eating that volume of food, it's going to hit you like a ton of bricks. Mm. And that's exactly what happened to Richard. Mm. Um, and, and as we said, I, you know, I don't think 100% replacement is necessary in an event like this, particularly those that kind of standard format of, of multi-stage ultras, which are usually sort of four to seven days long. Um, you know, you don't have to replace every calorie over those four to seven days. Um, you can go into a bit of a deficit over that period of time. Yeah. Um, it would be probably more for some of the things, like the expedition things where it might go on for weeks or months at a time, where getting closer to you know, 100% replacement is going to become more important. Mm. Yep, yep. And one way that, um, you know, that um, Rebecca um, measured the impact on um, performance uh, was um, how much he had to walk in um, each day. Yep. Yeah, and so what yeah. did they find out from that? Yeah, so on average, uh, I can't remember the exact figure off the top of my head. You might have it in front of you there, but I think it was about 20 minutes a day more that he had to walk for recovery when he had the half provisions compared to the full. Yeah. So he was going at, I think it was 60% of his VO2 max, yep. uh, which I think for him was about eight and a half kilometres an hour. Oh, no, maybe 10 kilometres an hour off the top of my head. Um, um, yeah. I think you've probably got it there in front of you. So you basically have to run 50 kilometres. I'm pretty sure it was 50 kilometres in five hours. Yes. Um, and then if he couldn't maintain that pace, he was feeling fatigued, he could slow down and walk at six kilometres an hour uh, for a period of time until he felt better and then start running again. 
uh, until he completed the, the 50 kilometres. And so, yeah, so with the half provisions, he spent about 20 minutes a day more walking than he did with the full provisions, despite the fact that he was carrying a pack that, you know, on day one was five kilos lighter. Yeah. 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 Um, so that's, yeah, I mean, that's quite a, a difference um, that, that that can make. Uh, so um, in terms of, I, I guess, so some of the things that he experienced, not only was the detriment in, you know, physical performance in relation to not getting in as much and then obviously um, the impact that, you know, effort was much more, he kind of was, um, he even mentioned, you know, thinking about food a lot more. Um, the, then when when he had then the full provisions, like you said, it was going, you know, just to be able to make that example, it was 100%. So it became really uncomfortable for him to, to tolerate that amount in his gut. Um, but you probably don't need to do the, the full provision. Um, what happens in the, the events like um, where you perhaps don't get as much energy intake in and you start to become really hungry? Um, what do you tend to see um, in those self-sufficient events that competitors can do? Yeah, so, I mean, I've, I've not done one of those <laughs> events personally, so I, I don't have a, a personal experience from this, but obviously we'll have an athlete next week we can we can ask that question to. Uh, but certainly, you know, you hear anecdotal stories, and Richard mentioned this last week as well, that people get to day three, day four of the event, and, you know, psychologically it's just just built and built and built uh, the hunger and the food deprivation that they get to the point of, you know, considering if they're going to start stealing food from other competitors. And um, I'm I'm not sure how much that actually happens, but certainly that thought process goes through people's mind and there's that preoccupation with with food and eating um, that that happens definitely. Mm. Yeah, Yeah, I heard um, actually because our supervisor, Ricardo Costa, has done the Marathon de Saab and I remember, I um I've listened to his experience of it and he he said that actually do like they mm. they or they um barter <laughs> yes so, yeah they they try and swap swap food um but he said yeah often there's people walking around the tents looking for for that extra extra food so mm. yeah um yeah absolutely and I think yeah. it speaks to the the need for variety as like as well as the quantity of food the variety mm. of food and we'll get onto that a little bit later on but um you know that's the psychological aspects become just so important in events like this mm. yep yep um cool so I think yeah people just need to um remember when they're looking at the logistics of pack weight, pack weight um that obviously as the um days go on the pack weight will get will get smaller as the event goes on so um i guess then the a really important question is how can um individuals maximize the energy density yeah so energy density uh, we sort of briefly touched on it before is this concept of how many calories are you getting per 100 grams of physical food uh, and so I guess the, the way we tend to think of it, uh, generally speaking, in terms of healthy eating is that we want to reduce the energy density. And this is just from, you know, sedentary people, you know, maintaining good health is that we don't want, uh, you know, processed, refined foods that are 
are too calorie rich per 100 grams because it's too easy to overeat. But in this case, the risk is under nutrition and under eating, and we want to maximize the calories for the smallest possible weight and volume of food. So in this case, we want to maximize the energy density. Um, so there's a few things to consider in this. Um, certainly from the, the case study series that, that we did um, and, and talking to other people, um, the energy density that people seem to aim for is probably a bit over 400 calories per 100 grams. If you can get to there, you, you're generally doing pretty well. Um, and I guess there's a few tips and tricks in terms of how to increase the energy density in the food that you are taking with you on a self-sufficient event. So firstly, um, if we think about what we call the at-water factors, which are basically uh, these have been around for over 100 years now, is how many calories you get per gram of protein, per gram of carbohydrate, per gram of um, of fat. Uh, and you know, obviously, we're not considering alcohol in this context. But mm. um, but fat has almost double the, the calories per gram compared to carbohydrate or protein. So theoretically, the higher fat your food is, um, you can get the same calories with almost half the, the weight. Mm-hmm. Um, the flip side to that is that fat is not one of the nutrients that we particularly need from a fueling or recovery point of view. Uh, if we think about you know the stuff that we talked about in, in recent episodes in terms of fueling for long events uh, with with Sam Impey in, in episode two, and then more recently in terms of um, you know recovery uh, with Isabella in the previous episode around protein and carbohydrate in that recovery period as well. So. Um, it sort of begs the question, uh, and I know this has come up a bit over the last sort of five to ten years in in this context of self sufficient events, is whether you're better off to think about going low carb, high fat for events like this. Um, I don't know. You probably got a an opinion on this, Steph. Do you want to weigh in on this? <laughs> um, well, I think I guess it's going to depend on on the event and and the individual. Um, I would just say that. Uh, it may not be particularly fantastic necessarily for the impact it has on the gut. Um, so there's some further research that will probably come out in, in that regard. But we know that even already with current research that we've got, that we know carbohydrate is protective for for the gut. Um, so, you know, that's just a, an aspect that we need to consider with those types of events. Yeah. Yep, definitely. And, and I guess in that context, it doesn't necessarily have to be massive amounts of carbohydrate mm. either. Mm. Uh, and so if we're thinking about the fact that we're not trying to necessarily meet 100% of our requirements and that the intensity is relatively right. low for most of these events, we don't have to be smashing in, you know, 80, 90 grams an hour of carbohydrate like you might do in, you know, professional road cycling or something like that or, or you know, elite marathon running. Mm. Um, in this case, it might even be 30 or 40 grams an hour. That's probably enough to be protective of the gut. Mm. Um, without you know carrying too much extra weight um, in that context. Yeah. So yeah, and I think uh, that's yeah, I think what that's... you generally can find as well in terms of if you look at ultra endurance events and multi stage events, and you look at the carbohydrate intake, it can usually get down to the the average being about that forty forty five grams of carbohydrate an hour. Yep. Mm. Yep. Exactly right. Mm. Okay, um, so yeah, that, that's one thing to consider, I guess, is those those at water factors. Uh, another thing in terms of energy density will obviously be the water content, because every time you've got any water content in your food, you're adding extra weight, obviously one gram per mil of, of water, mm. um, that's not giving you any nutrition in terms of carbohydrate or protein 
uh, or fat. So no no calories, no carbs, no protein. Um, Water in these events, we, we didn't mention it earlier, but is usually provided by the race organisers in most of these events. The only exception might be if it's a like a solo expedition type scenario that you're doing, so not a competitive event uh, where you have to source your own water along the way, um, where you may actually have to carry a bit more water because there might be times where you know there's going to be a long time between your know, potential water fill up points yep. um but but generally speaking in, in the racing scenarios you're provided with water along the way and it's usually um you know, more than sufficient so from that perspective again to reduce uh sorry to increase the energy density of what you're carrying with you you're really trying to minimize the water content in whatever you're taking so uh, for example if you're thinking about protein sources people might go oh a tin of tuna well the tuna sitting in oil or water, particularly if it's sitting in water, that's extra weight that you're carrying around in your pack that's not contributing anything in terms of calories or protein or carbs. So going for um, you know dehydrated meats, you know, jerky or salami sticks or something like that is going to be a much more weight efficient way of getting in the same amount of protein. Mm. Um, you can go you know to the full extreme of like powdered everything and dehydrated everything. Um, there's a, a documentary of James Cracknell, who was an ex-British rower who did Marathon de Saab, and originally um, they tried him out, just literally everything was powder. Mm. And, and psychologically it just destroyed him. He, he tried it in a sort of a lead-up event and he was just like, this is not going to work and I would never recommend 100% powdered everything. Um, and so they then sort of had to compromise a little bit on that. Uh, but theoretically that would probably be the most energy dense way of carrying your food uh, and then you just add water to everything but obviously dehydrated meals is a good way of doing it uh, you're getting a bit more flavor and a bit more texture into there rather than just everything in, in powder form mm. um, and, and minimizing the water content is pretty easy for your carbohydrate sources you can have quite dry things uh, whether it's powder form or not it is a little bit harder for protein, but as we said, you know, things like the jerky and the salami sticks or protein powder, as long as you don't overuse that because you'll get sick of it, mm. um, can be options as well. And, and things like milk powder added into to foods as well. Um, and I guess the, the other things to think about from an energy density point of view is minimizing the fiber content. So, you know, not going crazy on the vegetables, for example, or whole meal, whole grain mm. foods because that extra fiber you know, there's going to be a weight to it that's not contributing in terms of um, carbohydrate or calories. Uh, it'll have some carbohydrate or calories, but nowhere near as much as having more refined sources of carbohydrate. And again, you know, similar to the carb loading we talked about with Karen Hill, um, you know, eating like this for two or three or four days is, is not going to kill you in terms of, you know, developing diabetes or anything like that. Um, I guess the one thing that you do need to think about, particularly if the you know four or five days becomes six seven or longer, is the the chances of getting constipated um, because of this, and obviously that's not going to be a pleasant experience when you're out in the desert mm. uh, in a in a multi stage event. So, you know we do want some fibre in there, and it's just a bit of a balancing act. But I guess just making sure we don't go overboard with the fibre, um, which again we've we've discussed in in previous podcasts, but equally important in this context here. And then I guess the final thing, which is not so much a nutrition thing, but a logistical thing is we think about energy density in terms of the food that's inside the packaging, but we need to consider the packaging itself. Obviously, there's a weight to that. So if we're carrying around things in cans, you've got to carry the weight of the can around on your back and that's adding extra weight. So thinking about the choices you make uh, and even taking things out of their original packaging in some cases and repackaging them into you know Ziploc bags or other um 
seal things. One, um, you might be able to mould it to, to fit in terms of the space and the shape better um, than its original packaging, uh, provided it doesn't destroy whatever it is. Um, and secondly, obviously, you're saving weight in terms of the packaging as well. Uh, and one final trick I'd say there, uh, and this can be a little treat for people, is that on the very first day, often you eat your breakfast. It's part of your 2,000 calories for day one, but you eat it before you start running mm -hmm. or cycling or whatever it is. So that might be a day where you can bring a tin of baked beans or a tin of tuna or something with you because you're going to throw away the tin before you ever start moving. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, you can get away with it then. Um, but from then on, you're trying to minimise the packaging weight. Yeah. Yeah. And what about, um, you know, a really important aspect in these events, obviously, is to think about, um, well, trying to make sure they don't get sick. And one of those things is looking at food safety and, and hygiene. And then the other thing is as well, like they've got to carry those things. The environmental conditions can be quite extreme in some of them. Um, so what are some things they need to consider in relation to the food choices? Yeah, yeah, spot on. So obviously, you know, the last thing you want to do is develop food poisoning uh, during an event like this. So um, I, I guess one of the good things is one of the, the general principles of food safety is if you can reduce the water content, mm. you reduce the chances of bacteria growing in food. Mm -hmm. uh, and so dehydrated foods, as a general rule, will be safer anyway. Um but obviously making sure that they're well sealed and that they're not taking on moisture from the, the atmosphere. Um, and also making sure that if you are making up those foods with the water that you provided, that you're consuming the food pretty much straight away once you've made them, not leaving it sitting around for a period of time that it can potentially get bugs in it and growing and then you know giving you food poisoning down the track. Um, the other thing is, uh, and I know... You've talked about this before, Steph, is you know, if you're using hydration bladders, you know, making sure you clean those out well, particularly if you're going to put sports drink or something with carbohydrate in them, is that that, that can then grow bugs either in the bladder itself or in the, in the line um, that runs to your mouth. So making sure you, you've got the ability to clean those out or consider not using sports drink in the, in the hydration bladder and getting your carbohydrate from other sources possibly as well. Yeah. Anything else you want to add around that? I remember you telling me something about M&Ms. Yeah, so this is not so much a food safety mm. thing. This is more a, you know, preventing a, a backpack full of sticky, messy food. Yeah. Um, now, obviously, again, if you're minimising the, the water content of foods, you're going to have less chances of um, sticky messes, I mm -hmm. suppose. Uh, but some people will bring things like energy gels with them. Um, some people like to bring chocolates. You, know, you mentioned, mm. I think, in a previous episode, when you did the Trans Rockies race, you know, Snickers bars and things like that. Yep. Um, the problem with something like that is if the packaging bursts or it even if just you're opening it to eat it and it's been in a bag in the sun for a long time, you're going to have a sticky, gooey mess mm -hmm. and no one likes that. So uh, one of the, the, the things that a lot of people use um, to get sort of some really energy-dense food in and getting things like chocolate as a bit of a treat but also as something that's high in calories are things like M&Ms because they're not going to melt. They're covered in the, the shell around the outside, so that's protective. Even if the inside bit's melted, it's not going to make a mess everywhere. So um, that, that's a good one. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you know, when you are packaging your food, you know, lighter packaging is better in terms of weight, but just make sure that however you pack it um, and however it's packaged is not going to result in the things getting crushed or squashed or broken in a way that makes it non-edible anymore mm -hmm. or choosing foods where it doesn't really matter if it gets crushed. You know, things like potato chips, for example, if, if they get crushed up, um, 
well, you're eating potato chip crumbs, but they're still going to taste the same. It doesn't mm-hmm. change the nutritional value or the ability to consume them. Mm-hmm. So that, that's not a bad one. You know, nuts, the, the same kind of thing. So um, foods are a little bit more indestructible, I guess, or if they get damaged, it doesn't really matter too much is important. Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned the the extreme environments, and and often a lot of these events take place in very hot environments. You know, desert based races. You know, MDS is obviously an example of that, but there's other other ones. Um, one of the things that that certainly is an issue is um, food texture, and we discussed this I think with Kev Ferguson um, with the old old school power bars that you know they're very temperature sensitive you know too hot and they become a sticky gooey mess too cold they become so hard you're going to break your teeth trying to eat them Um, and so again thinking about foods that are going to be fairly stable in terms of texture whether it's really hot or you know night times in the desert it can get really cold so you know you have both extremes potentially to contend with Um, so have a think about your food choices in terms of things that are going to tolerate very hot or very cold environments Um, Gels and sports drinks are another one that people don't necessarily think of because they're going to tolerate the environment, but it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be pleasant to consume. Um, And when we did the case series with the MDS competitors, it was one of the things that came up over and over again in that was that, you know, once you you put sports drink in, in your bottles, you're carrying your bottles usually on your shoulders, fully exposed to the sun. And then that becomes like hot tea after a little while in running around in the desert. And, you know, if you drink, you know, commercial sports drink that's at 35 degrees Celsius, it tastes pretty horrible. Um, So it's not going to be a pleasant experience. You're not going to want to drink it. It gets sticky and disgusting in your mouth um, and and really something that's going to turn people off. So from that perspective, um, that's something to to have a think about. And we'll we'll talk a bit later on, Steph. I think you've got some suggestions around, you know, alternatives maybe for that. Um, The other one is energy gels. And so a lot of people sort of commented that they went into the races thinking they could use a lot of sports drinks and gels, which they traditionally use in their single day events, no problem. But in the multi-day events, and particularly in the heat of the desert, they were just disgusting. Like people were talking about the like the espresso caffeinated, like coffee-flavoured mm. gels, and they were just this like disgusting coffee-flavoured toothpaste kind of mix by the time it you know heated up and, and got really hot in their bag. Um so, yeah, things to think about. And the other thing, I guess, that came out overwhelmingly in that case series and also from other people I've worked with anecdotally is that the flavour fatigue, particularly in a hot environment, kicks in really severely and much more than people anticipate. And so their preferences switch very quickly from sweet foods to savoury foods within you know, a couple of days uh, in that in kind of environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, again, thinking about the, the types of ways you're going to get your carbohydrate in um, not not emphasising the, the sweet-flavoured stuff too much, particularly after day one or two, because it might be a real struggle then to get it in um, psychologically. Yeah. I think that's why um, some of the, like you see now, the gels um, and even the, the chews, like the, the sports confectionery lollies, they um, over time now have started to introduce some more savoury options, whereas before, you know, it was all just like, fruit flavored or chocolate or sweet stuff um, now you see like things like pizza margarita maple bacon um, ginger ale um, yeah so uh, I think they're starting to consider perhaps a bit more of um, introducing mm. some savory options but they can yeah depending on the um, product it could still be 
uh, sickly if it, if it gets in the hot hot conditions. Mm, yeah. Um, and I think some products are also, like even if it's still kind of a sweet flavour, mm. at least dialing down the intensity yes. of the sweetness mm, and the flavour so it's a, a much milder flavour. And I think you see that um, sort of intuitively in a lot of ultra-distance athletes, their preferences in terms of sports drinks and gels and things are not the sort of the Gatorades, the Powerades, the really strong flavoured stuff that often is consumed a lot in, say, team sports. Um, they're going for the products that have a much milder flavour, mm-hmm. um, which is often some of the more niche brands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And often in these uh, events, there, there can sometimes be, uh, I guess, mixed messages on uh on hydration and and or sodium so can you explain i guess some of the cautions we need to be mindful of in in these types Mm. of events yeah i mean i guess it's one thing particularly for a lot of these events that are run in sort of very hot desert type environments that people freak out and go oh my god i need so much Mm. water i'm going to die of dehydration kind of thing Mm. they associate deserts with dehydration which you know obviously makes sense yeah um yeah, in each of these events, you know, in the majority, unless it's a solo expedition or something, uh, the competitive events, water is generally provided and it's provided at the start of the day, the end of the day and, and checkpoints along the way in most cases. Uh, and in most cases, the, the amount of water they provide is more than ample for the amount that you actually need to hydrate yourself and prepare your dehydrated food uh, and, you know, do a little bit of, you know, washing of any sort of utensils or things that you're eating and drinking out of and, and so on as well. So um, from that point of view, um, usually you, you're not going to run out of water and, unless you get lost or, as I said, like a solo expedition where you've got to source your own water. Maybe that's a, a little bit different. Uh, the, the flip side to that is because the intensity is relatively low in these events, there is a risk of, of overhydration and developing hyponatremia. Uh, and this has been shown uh, in some multi-stage uh, events where there's been studies done um, where people have actually taken blood samples you know, before and after stages that you know, as time's gone on, their blood volume's actually got bigger um, and their blood sodium concentration has tended, if anything, to go sort of lower. Um, so there is a risk of hyponatremia and, and overhydration in these events. Um, so I guess the biggest thing I would say here is um, you know, drinking to thirst is probably the safest option mm-hmm. in these scenarios uh, and not trying to second guess your sweat losses and, and drinking to a, a rigid plan around this, uh, I think will be probably an important one. Um, in, in terms of the, the sodium, uh, a lot of these events hand out salt tablets mm-hmm. to competitors as well to sort of supplement the food supply. Uh, and again, we, you know, we talked about this uh, in episode 10a around, you know, do I need a sweat test and, and the implications around that for and sodium needs of athletes. And, and again, you know, we don't have definitive guidelines on how much sodium people need or, or should have during exercise, but um, certainly the, the mathematical modelling that, that I've been looking at recently um, and, and just your know, anecdotal feedback and observational studies of people going to races is that probably the amount of sodium we need is far less than we think. Um, and a lot of that sodium will come from people's food, particularly if they're going for more the savoury preferences in terms of food items, um, but probably they don't need to go nuts on, on salt tablets and that's probably going to be more detrimental than helpful. Um, not to say that they don't need any salt tablets and particularly if someone is someone with a very high sweat sodium concentration, if you know that that's the case for you, you've had it measured before, then maybe there's some planning that you might want to do there. Um, but yeah, as we said back in episode 10A, there's really no scientific rationale for replacing 100% 
of your sodium losses or, or more than that. So just to be very wary with salt tablets because it can be very easy to inadvertently um, consume a lot more sodium than you had originally planned. Yeah, yeah. And we've spoken, you know, about the heat. I guess the other um, extreme of that is the cold um, and the mm. impacts that that can potentially have on the texture of foods. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, not not every food is is affected negatively by the cold, but a lot of foods are, mm -hmm. and, and you know generally they're going to be harder, um, you know more chewy, more crunchy, more solid, in whatever it is, um, or you know if it's fluid, potentially it's going to freeze. Mm -hmm. um, so there are certainly uh, challenges that you have to get around, um, and I always take my cues from Siobhan Crochet, who's the dietitian for the Australian Olympic Winter Institute. Mm -hmm. So she works with the the Winter Olympians, um, you know, the snowboarders, the ski jumpers, all that kind of thing, uh, and so they're often having to take you know snacks out with them on the mountain in very cold environments. And um, you know, the the thing that she always comes back to is that you know th this texture issue is a real issue, uh, but if you keep your foods and fluids close to your body you can use your body temperature to sort of help prevent the things from freezing or getting too cold um, and that can be uh, a really good strategy so uh, when you are carrying those things you know not having gels right on the outside of your pack having them maybe tucked into your your jacket or something like that where they're close to your body t body to keep them at a reasonable temperature is going to be helpful from a texture point of view uh, and the same with you your drink bottles obviously trying to protect them and keep them as close to your body as you can mm. um, will do at least the best job you can to prevent them freezing yeah uh, and if you're in a scenario where you can fill up with you know warm water then might maybe you have to do that by the time you drink it it'll probably be cold anyway um, I guess the other thing to consider and anyone who's been to the snow or in a very cold environment will know that it's very difficult to open the packaging on foods and things when your hands are freezing. Um, so just consider how you package things and, and how easy or difficult it's going to be to open things and access them uh, either while you're running or riding or in that sort of immediate post-exercise period where you're, where you're really cold but you want to get your recovery and nutrition in quickly. And if, if you've got to fiddle around with packaging that's difficult to open and your hands just don't want to do it, that's going to be very frustrating. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And what were some other things, I guess, that you picked up from doing that um, Marathon de Saab case study? Yeah, I mean, I guess the, the things, the themes that came out from the, the five athletes that we, we followed for that case series, firstly, the flavour fatigue, we mentioned it before, was much worse than people anticipated. You know, people made the comments that oh, I was sort of warned beforehand that you know, I'd get sick of sweet foods. And I sort of, I sort of thought that that was kind of an issue, but it got to day three and I really realised it was far worse than I ever expected. Mm. Um, and so if I'd done the race different, you know, if I do it again, I would preference far more savoury foods compared to sweet foods um, and also variety, uh, not in terms of just flavour but texture as well. Um, and that's a really important one, you know, that psychological aspect, as we mentioned earlier, if you're uh, going in and, and not eating enough food to cover all your nutritional needs, there's a potential you're going to get really hungry, start being preoccupied with food. Uh, and the things you can do to minimise that is, you know, in the first instance, consider carrying more food. Um, but in the second instance, the variety of food, I think, is really important, um, both flavours and textures. Uh, and then the third one that came out from that case study, which is something I hadn't really thought about until I started working and, and speaking to these guys about it, was um, dry mouth. Mm. 
you know, if you're racing through the desert, an environment that's not very humid, mouth open, breathing a lot, um, you can get a really dry mouth and then that can make it really challenging if you've brought a whole bunch of crackers to eat, for example, as your carbohydrate source and you've got a really dry mouth, that's going to be really hard work. Um, so think about the, the texture of foods um, that you're consuming um, when, you, when you've got a really dry mouth and things that are going to be really challenging are probably not the best things to be taking, particularly during uh, and immediately post-exercise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then I think just some of the, the other things to consider, which you've mentioned, is um, there can be a loss of appetite as well, potentially. Um, and, um, and that can, it can be a loss of appetite. It can, uh, then what you need to think about is, well, what are some easy ways for me to still be able to get in that energy intake without, you know, I guess, um, filling me up too, too much. Um, so um, loss of appetite can really, obviously, if you've got that and then you're suffering from that, that's really going to be detrimental to your energy intake. Um, and as we know, you know, having good energy intake will help improve your performance and being able to get through the event. Um, so... Um, do you have any particular tips in terms of if athletes do lose their appetite in these events? And ha did you see that happen in the um, in the case series? Yeah, I think it's very individual. So some people have no problem eating, you know, a full meal yep. after stages, even you know, four, five, six days into yep. an event. Whereas other people, you know, really struggle with it. So I think it's identifying where people kind of sit on that spectrum if you can from you know previous experiences if they've done races in the past or from you know doing back-to-back -back days in training as well as as much as you can to kind of replicate that experience mm. um and, and it's one of the things that that i noticed was one of the key differences across the five people in that case series for mds was some of them had three meals a day plus snacks so they had lunch sort of post stage whereas other people just had the two meals plus snacks mm -hmm. and so i think the the biggest uh take home there would be think about what you're going to be eating in the hour or two immediately after you finish a stage uh, and that's where you need to be thinking okay am i likely to have loss of appetite in which case i need to keep this really compact you know that's where maybe using the protein powders and the maltodextrins and things like that um, are going to be really useful to get a lot of protein and carbs in for the, the minimum volume of food. Mm. Um, whereas if, you know, if you're someone who's likely to be hungry post-stage, then maybe you're going to use a dehydrated meal, mm -hmm. uh, which is going to be a bit more filling, um, a bit more sort of variety of flavour and things. Yeah. Um, and that's because you, you're actually looking forward to it, whereas some people just don't want to look at it. But it's really important from a recovery point of view that they do get something in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they might start off first with those snacks to then when their appetite can start to resume, they just need to get some stuff in um, and then they could have that potential um, dehydrated meal. Um, and, yeah, as you said, um, needing to um, just really, you know, the plan that you then start um, and, and implement, implement that in training um, in those back-to-back -back long sessions and... Um, so you just get an idea of how you individually are responding. Um, the other thing that you mentioned as well is that nuts can be um, obviously really energy dense, high in fat. So they can, 
they can be quite weight efficient, don't take up a lot of space. Um, they don't, they're not super heavy in obviously the carbs or, or protein as such, but um, they can contribute to, to energy intake. Um, and then the other one that we've spoken about is maltodextrin, which is a, a um, carbohydrate polymer. Uh, and it doesn't have uh, much flavour to it. So often what we see, Alan, um, is we often hear people saying how, you know, they just get sick of, and we've spoken about it, that um, sickly sweet taste, um, but then we still are trying to get in some carbohydrate for them. One really clever way of being able to do that is to use this maltodextrin, which is just like a white powder, um, and it's getting in the carbs, but it doesn't have much flavour. So either the individual can add some flavouring or whatever flavour they want to it, or they can just, just keep it as, as not having much flavour to it. Uh, some people add more sort of savoury things. So sometimes um, people might add maltodextrin to, to like Deb mash um, and, um, and then add even things like um, stock powder to it. Uh, so that can be a really clever way to get in some more energy and carbohydrate. Um, yeah, and you can add it to foods as well. So you can add it to, um, like you might have a recovery shake that you add it to to give you extra carbohydrate. You can add it to, like you might have like a dehydrated muesli mix, like you know oats and dried fruit and nuts and things in the morning with maybe milk powder. You can add some maltodextrin into that as well to boost up the, the energy and the carb content in that as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it behaves similar to sugar, I suppose, in that it dissolves in water and that kind of thing. Uh, it's a staple in most um, gels, certainly, and, and a lot of sports drinks as well. doesn't dissolve quite as well, but reasonably well uh, in water. Um, as you said, it's a, a fine white powder. So the only thing, I guess, is that it, you know, in terms of quarantine and, and customs mm -hmm. and things coming into other countries, you might get a few raised eyebrows with yep. a bag of, of white powder. Um, so you just keep that in mind, obviously, wherever you're travelling and, and you know, find out whether that's going to be a problem for you or not. Uh, but, yeah, it's certainly one that we, we talked about with Karen Hill in terms of the carbohydrate loading, but it's equally useful here. Yeah, yeah. And and then it's just then also with the food that you're taking with you, the nutrition you're taking with you, you obviously need to consider then what utensils do you have available to be able to prepare what what you've what you've taken with you. Yeah, and I've seen a lot of the MDS guys, uh, and this is a really clever one, is rather than taking a bowl or a plate or something with them because there's extra weight and space they've got to take up in their pack, they actually take, because they're provided with these like one and a half litre water bottles along the way, is they actually use one of the ones that's been used and it's empty. Uh, and so instead of taking a plate, they take a knife and they cut the top off it. And so they use it the, the end with the lid upside down as basically a bowl. And so they prepare their dehydrated meal in the end of the, the plastic water bottle and then they can eat out of that with a spoon. Smart. Yeah. Right. Got to get creative. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Resourceful. Yeah, yeah. And a big part of, of these events is, um, depending on the event, is, um, is sleep, uh, sleep deprivation. Um, and then just just thinking about if you are doing an event that's going throughout the the night, um, how can you keep yourself alert? Uh, but then also, I guess, not wanting to over 
arouse yourself. Um, so obviously caffeine um, is, uh, you know, an uh, ergogenic aid that can help with, with sleep, um, but you just need to consider, okay, well, um, you know, if I take this amount of caffeine, it can take perhaps about four hours or so for that to dial down. Um, and so where is there a part where you are going to need to be sleeping um, so then if there is, then you need to just calculate that in terms of where you put that caffeine intake. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I guess in terms of summarising uh, today, if anyone is considering uh, or planning already for the uh, next or first self-sufficient type of event what will be what would be your key take-home messages mm. well, i guess the first one is that concept of energy density the more energy dense you can make your your food um, the, the more calories you can pack into the smallest volume and, and weight of food obviously makes it easy to carry uh, so that's probably number one uh, and thinking about you know that 400 calories per 100 grams it seems to be a, a reasonably good benchmark. If you can get above that, you're doing pretty well. Um, I guess the second one is like then how much total food do I carry? Uh, if I carry too much, it's extra weight. If I don't carry enough, it's not good enough nutrition. Um, I think it's clear from the anecdotal feedback I've had from people that have done these events, um, plus you know, the case study we've done with Richard, you know, you, you going close down towards the 2,000 calories a day, which is the bare minimum required in, in regulations for a lot of the, the running events, um, is just not enough for most people. Uh, there might be some of the elite guys who can tolerate that because they've done it for a really long time. Um, but for most people, particularly if it's your first event, I would strongly recommend carrying a lot more than that and that even though you have to carry extra weight, it'll be well worth it both physically and psychologically in terms of carrying that extra nutrition and, and having the, the food there both from a hunger and appetite point of view but also from the, you know, the fueling and recovery perspective as well. Um, I guess the third one would be around uh, some of the things that, that we often see in these kind of events in terms of the extremes of flavour fatigue. Um, and, and hunger as well. And so thinking about um, the psychological impact of food that's going to have um, and expecting that it will be a lot worse than than maybe what you've experienced before if you haven't done a multi-stage event. Um, and that's certainly the feedback that we get from a lot of people is that, you know, we, we always thought this would be an issue, but we had no idea how bad it would be an issue. So uh, variety is really important uh, and a lot of savoury-based foods tend to be preferred over sweet foods. So even if you think you're a sweet tooth, uh, there's a good chance that by day three you won't be a sweet tooth. Um, I, yeah, I, I think um, just thinking about that point is, um, and as we always try and get people to do, is try uh, and and simulate that event as best as possible as well so if you are going to be in um, performing in hot conditions then um, try and get an environment you can simulate that to be hot so a prime example that we get people to do if they can sometimes is um, you know they might have a shed um, and they can crank up the heaters um, and and then you know then take that food that you think you're going to be able to consume and have it in that environment um, while you're exercising and see how well that does go down. Mm, yep. Definitely. Yep. Yep. Uh, and then I think the final thing is more just sort of practical tips and tricks. You know, 
avoid things that are going to have a, a big water content to them, avoid things that have a lot of heavy packaging associated with them, maybe repackage if you need to, um, avoid things that are going to break or spill or um, things that might you know, be a, a food poisoning risk as well. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Well, hopefully that's um, helped some some people just to think about um, there might be some extra little tips that they've gotten out from that. Um, I've found it helpful. Uh, and um, who, so who's our next person that we've got on after this one? Yeah, so obviously we wanted to get an athlete's perspective on someone who's done a self-sufficient multi-stage ultramarathon. So uh, we're having from the UK uh, an Ironman triathlete but also an ultra-runner, Jodie Moss, who's joining us awesome. next week on the podcast. So uh, Jodie did Marathon de Saab in 2019. Cool. Uh, and I think she was the eighth-ranked eighth female off the top of my head. Impressive. Um, so, she's yeah, she's done pretty well. Um, and we'll, we'll get her take on a lot of the issues we discussed today uh, and her own experiences of those and, and obviously what she saw from other competitors around her and some of the other practical tips and strategies that she's learned along the way. Perfect. Looking forward to it. Yep, indeed. So, yeah, we'll uh, see everyone next week. If you have a suggestion for a, a topic or an episode that you'd like covered on The Long Munch, you can obviously hit us up at The Long Munch on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Um, and feel free to provide any other feedback. If you'd like to give us a, a podcast rating on Apple Podcasts or a review on there, we'd certainly appreciate that as well. Um, but otherwise, yeah, enjoy your week, everyone, and we'll see you back here next week for uh, our episode with Jody Moss. See ya. <laughs>